I'm Jean Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is University of Southern California professor David Troyer. He's an Ojibwe Indian who grew up on the Leech Lake Reservation in Minnesota. And his new book, Res Life, An Indian's Journey Through Reservation Life, has just been published by Atlantic Monthly Press. David, I really appreciate your coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, June. Res Life is really an amazing marriage of history and personal experience. I can't think of another book that does such a good job of taking history out of the past, sort of showing how things that happened 150 or 100 or 50 years ago have really concrete effects on people who are alive today. So I'll just begin with some facts uh, that I learned from the book. There are 564 federally recognized Indian tribes in the United States and approximately 310 reservations. There are about 2 million Indians in the U.S. and Indian land makes up 2.3% of the land in the United States. What would you say, David, is the biggest misconception about reservations and reservation life? I have to pick the biggest? There's so many. <laughs> a hilarious um, misconception is that reservations function as prisons of some sort, complete with not just metaphoric but, but literal fences and um, things like that. So when my brother went to college, someone asked him where he was from. He said he was from Leech Lake Reservation, and, and his classmate looked perplexed and then asked in kind of an odd hush, well, how'd you, how'd you get over the fence? <laughs> um, as though going to college were some escape from Alcatraz. But that's just an extreme example of how reservations in, in general are, are seen as places which are far removed from what we might consider regular life or, or American life. That thinking about reservations as existing in some faraway place lost in space and time, burdened by history, where no one has a cell phone and no one uses Facebook or, or the equivalent thereof, and we sort of live out some pitiful existence is um, needed to be undone. And I mm. hope I've done it in this book. Right. I would say so. I mean, it, you, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that often there are more, or sometimes, I guess, there are more non-Indian people living on reservations than Indians. There are few occasions where those of us, especially who live in cities, might have occasion to visit a reservation. There's not a lot of back and forth necessarily unless you are fishing or hunting or, or in some other way in a in a rural situation, or is that another misconception that I've managed to uh, dredge up? I think there is more back and forth than, than we think. Um, there's certainly more commingling and cohabitation and overlap between what we think of as native lives and non-native lives, and that the distinction between the two in some places is actually hard to tell. It's hard to tell the difference between the two, but there's, again, a tendency to think of reservations as far away from everything else. Right. So I, w I would guess that, that more Americans and more travelers have been through and on more reservations than they actually, than they actually know. There was a reporter who came to um, interview me once at Leech Lake, and so I brought her around to my house. I brought her around to you know, driving her all over the place, all over Leech Lake. And, and after a while, after a couple hours of this, she said, well, when are we going to get to the reservation? <laughs> I said, look, we've been on the reservation all day. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take you where you think you want to go. And then we'll actually go someplace interesting. <laughs> so I took her to the, the poorest, most you know, stereotypical part of the reservation, a place called Track 33. A lot of rough living, some houses really in need of repair. And it conforms to the stereotype. The sort of the, it's the iconic you know, Indian neighborhood. 
And then, only then, did she finally feel as though she were on the reservation, but she was, she was on it all day. Well, let's talk about, about that sort of idea of reservations as hells, because some of the things in the book, you do spool out a lot of depressing statistics about life on the res. I mean, incredibly high unemployment rates, low median income, bad graduation levels, alcohol and drug use, lots of kids who don't live with their parents, high incarceration levels. How do we, and, and I suppose more to the point you, how do you avoid despair about life on Indian land? Yeah, there's a lot of, not just statistics, right, but a lot of right. tough life. Right. And, um, and it touches everyone. It's hard to get your mind around it sometimes. And in fact, I was talking with a colleague at USC, and she does her work in Rwanda. She, she mm. focuses, she's a psychologist, and she focuses on post-traumatic stress. And her big question about Rwanda was, what happens when there's been some sort of trauma and it's not, you know, as, as some, most traumas are in the past, like a war experience. You go to war, you're traumatized, you come back. But what if you never leave the place where the trauma occurred? What happens? What happens to you psychologically? What happens to the fabric of your community? And I said, well, you know, that's, that's a question worth, worth asking about reservations as well. There's a lot of trauma. And what do we do with it? when we're living in the places where all that trauma occurred. And in part, for me, it's different for everyone, but for me, you have to remember, you have to try and remember that we're not simply the sum of our pain. And that was really the whole point of the book. You know, the whole, my whole mission in the book, for, for myself and my family and my children, first and foremost, was to try and remember and document a pleasing complexity to our lives as opposed to just a, a kettle of pain. That was really what I was after. I would say you, you succeeded. I hope so. Yeah. I really do. There's a great chapter about a lot of the disputes that have happened. You talk about the ones in Wisconsin and Minnesota particularly, but I assume that they happen all over, around Indians' rights to hunt and fish, for example, on their land. And uh, some people who want access to those lands, claim that Indians have special rights. So do Indians' right to hunt and fish on Indian reservations or on Indian land represent special rights that are denied to non-Indians? Uh, no, actually. And uh, there's a big difference, and people don't like to hear this, but being able to hunt and fish, I'm speaking about any American's um, ability to purchase a license or even you know, non-residents' ability to purchase a, a hunting license or a fishing license is not a right. It's a privilege. If you're a convicted felon, you can lose your hunting and fishing privileges. So for non-Indians, hunting and fishing aren't rights. They're, they're privileges negotiated and sort of administered by states and, and by the federal government, depending on what you're hunting. But for Native folk, it's a treaty right. These are rights we retained those rights were defined in those treaties. Now, those treaties had, um, in some ways, they were unfair, but they were a quid pro quo. So, so there was a pretty good exchange, and I think non-natives got the better end of it, if you ask me. Right. Non-natives got the right to settle most of America, and we retained the rights to hunt and fish with limitations. We can't just slaughter everything, right? <laughs> there are limitations. We do uh, have our own conservation codes and limits and seasons and things like that rules, mm -hmm. um, our own laws that we can break and then be punished for breaking. So, so these were rights that we retained and non-natives got to settle. 
so as I say in the book, you know, if, if this is somehow disagreeable to most people, I'm sure many tribes would be willing to abrogate the treaty, uh, treaties that form the reservations and non-Native folk can move elsewhere off the continent and we can just resume life as it was. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. No, no. no. There would be extraordinarily complicated. I mean, That well, would be fairly complicated. <laughs> one of the things, though, that really comes across in your book, really just kind of the role of history and the role of policy. I mean, things like the right to have casino gambling mm. essentially comes from – you know, what happened to the Cherokee in the 19th century and then a court case in 1971? An awful lot of, of these rights have been obtained in courtrooms. Yeah, that was something that surprised me quite a bit. I mean, when I was writing the book, and I hope this is clear, I, I never felt that I was writing the book as some kind of expert. Largely, the process of writing the book was was a process of going back to school and learning about well, okay, how do treaties work? Or, okay, how are tribal governments organized? And why are they organized in the ways they are? And how come we do have our own court systems? And how did gaming become defined as a reserved right of sovereign nations? Mm-hmm. And so I found myself going back to the books all the time and going back to people who are experts. I'm, I'm not, but, but they are. And um, I was shocked by how often I wound up back in court. Yeah. It seemed like every issue I was tracing out landed me back studying some Supreme Court case, some appeals court case, some district court case, some some kind of legal battle. In many ways, our rights have been defined or, or, or further defined in court, not created by decisions, but mm-hmm. defined by them. I don't think the Supreme Court has the power to decide what our, what our rights are, but it's very complicated. And so Indian rights have have swung this way and that uh, throughout the centuries depending on the makeup of the court and the federal government's willingness to to enforce the court's decisions. And that's why I think looking at the Indian example, looking at the example of our history and our histories is really important, especially at this moment for all Americans. If you look at us, you realize how important policy is, how important Supreme Court justice selection processes are. I think if you if you know I hope that after reading Res Life any American reader will with a sort of gut-wrenching sense of fear realize that <laughs> all of this stuff matters policy matters who's elected matters it all matters Yeah no I, I would say that definitely comes across starting in the late 80s one of the ways that that all played out was the growing phenomenon of Indian gaming. You say in the book and and in a great series that you wrote for Slate that this massive phenomenon, as I said before, began with the Cherokee in the 19th century and again in 1971 with the tax bill on a trailer. Can you tell us that story? It's so complicated and I don't (laughs) even have notes. I don't even have the book in front of me and I feel like I should carry both and that I have to keep my school books with me so I can (laughs) can answer these questions intelligently, right? But there were some Supreme Court cases – the Cherokees filed a motion that it was it was unlawful, unconstitutional to have them removed from their homelands in, in the southeastern United States. The government wanted them removed just because there was gold discovered in parts of Georgia mm. and North Carolina, among other reasons. Also, they wanted room to settle Anglo folk down there. The Cherokees brought their case up and they won in the United States Supreme Court. There are a series of cases. Mm-hmm. And they won and Andrew Jackson, then president, said – Okay, the courts decided one way, let's see them enforce it. And then he, using the military, forcibly removed Cherokee and other tribes from the eastern United States. And they were marched to Oklahoma 
in what we know as the Trail of Tears. But as part of the Supreme Court decisions that were handed down before the removal, there was a phrase that um, Justice Marshall used, which was, quote, domestic dependent nations, end quote. It's really poetic. It's really <laughs> unclear what that means. But it was the first time that that you know, in the law books, although we'd been treated as sovereign nations, you don't make treaties with anything other than another nation. You don't make treaties with with any groups other than the nation. So we've been, although we we'd been treated as nations, this is the first time it was articulated, I think, in the legal discourse. And so, this became something that tribes in the '70s and then more forcefully in the '80s started to think really creatively about, like, what can nations do? What rights do we retain as nations? Tribes felt that they retained all civil jurisdiction. Criminal jurisdictions had been compromised, fought over, eroded, parceled out. That's a whole other conversation. But in terms of you know the civil jurisdictions and sort of the, the, the civil makeup of tribes, tribes wisely recognized that they could regulate trading commerce on the reservation. They could decide for themselves if they wanted to have gambling. This created lots of conflict with states and with the feds. More court cases were mounted, and the tribes won in Florida, in California, and um, this case of this trailer, which was used as precedent in Minnesota, which said that the United States government has no right to interfere in terms of you know taxation in any kind of broad civil jurisdiction that tribes retain those rights. So the feds can't tax, the states can't tax homes, among other things. State income taxes can't be levied on tribal members living and working on the reservations and so on. And so hmm. this precedent opened the way for, for gaming, which is not a right, I should, I should state again, that was given to Native people. This is a right we've retained from time immemorial. And it's one we just began exercising in the 80s. I have some more questions along those lines. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. You're listening to The Afterword, a Slate podcast about nonfiction books and their authors. Atlantic Monthly Press has sent us four copies of David Troyer's new book, Res Life, an Indian's Journey Through Reservation Life. If you'd like one, send an email with the words Res Life Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, February 24th, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give some other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. So um, one of the questions you explore in the book's last chapter and which you wrote about in an op-ed you did for the New York Times last December is the notion of how we decide who's an Indian and how you decide. Right. It seems the usual way is blood quantum, that is to say, what percentage of Indian blood a person has. So right. what are the flaws in that method and what other methods do you propose? Blood quantum is... For as a criteria for tribal enrollment is is really complicated. It's also really important. So it's it's something I think that that tribes and, and Indian folk we really need to to think about creatively and constructively. It's always been in place as a system to determine who gets what and who is entitled to what provisions of what treaties that a tribe has signed. So if a tribe signs a treaty with with the government back in the nineteenth century. And some provisions are we'll receive X amount of dollars for X amount of years. We'll receive 
um, seed, we'll receive iron goods, we'll receive blankets or annuities in, in terms of food or money, what have you. You had to figure out who, who was going to get that stuff. Mm. And you had to protect the people who belonged to the tribe legitimately from being ripped off by a fairly advantaged um, and secure class of traders, you know, who might have some, some Indian blood, but, but we're, we're on the make, mm-hmm. traders or Indian agents or whomever. So blood quantum became eventually the way that they solved that riddle. Who gets to run for office? Who gets to the benefits of tribal housing such as they are? The United States government loves this system or loved it because they had a heavy sort of draining, taxing responsibility to Indian tribes as spelled out in treaties. Now, they could either just ignore their treaty obligations. The government has done that many times. Or it could find a way to to effectively make Indians disappear, and blood quantum was one way to do that. The thinking was that that Native folk will will intermarry with, um, have children with, um, non-Native folk, and over a couple of generations, technically there won't be any Indians left. The United States government will be off the hook. They won't have to sort of solve perpetually all these problems that were generated by treaties and, and tribes. This is their thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So that's been in place as, as a sort of unfair practice, as not a best practice, as people say, right. um, for a long time. It's still an issue. Uh, my personal opinion is I don't think that our tribes are powerful enough that we can afford to exclude our own people on the basis of something as flimsy as blood. Now, blood is important. Mm-hmm. I think it still needs to stay as one of the metrics, as one of the requirements. But I think there should be other requirements for citizenship. And if we're creative about those, we might actually strengthen our communities as opposed to, to weakening them. So you're so, suggesting that one could become a nationalized, a naturalized Ojibwe just as I became a naturalized U.S. citizen? To an extent. I think that you – I think blood quantum would still need to be a part of that equation. But what if there was also – a certain a certain degree of blood or, or descendancy or, or something, and might there be a residency requirement? Might there be for a native person who's never lived at Leech Lake, an Ojibwe person who's never even been there, a, a one year, two year, three year residency before they could become enrolled? So they have to move up there if it's something really important to them. And by moving there, they might add, and they might help, they might add to or, or benefit the community in some way through their work and through their presence. Might there need to be a, a language requirement? To become a naturalized U.S. citizen, there are there's a citizenship test, among mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, might we require that? So people have to know our own history, how the treaties work, to know our own tribal constitution. These are what-ifs, and every one of them poses a problem. Every one of them is unfair in one way or another or difficult. But I just think we need to be creative, and we need to keep our eyes on on what would make Native communities, Indian communities stronger. To me, that's... That's the bottom line. Uh, perhaps this is just re-asking my previous question again, but is being Indian a racial or a national identity? Is it a culture or an ethnicity? Is it any yeah. of those things? It's all and none. You find some really perplexing situations when you look at, at people. For example, I know full-blooded you know, people who are genetically, racially, 100% native, and yet they cannot get enrolled in mm-hmm. any tribe because different tribes have different enrollment criteria and they're X'd out of one or the other or two or three. They might be from four or five different tribes. Right. And so this person is racially 100% Indian 
on paper has no status as an Indian person whatsoever. Right. Has no treaty rights. Has no can't vote in our uh, you know in their tribal elections. Cannot run for office. This person whose family has suffered for centuries and who could very well deserve what few, I should say, benefits might devolve from being enrolled, can't be. They might be, might have been raised in a sort of traditional Indian household with cultural practices and religions and maybe even language, but they're technically not an Indian person. Likewise, I know people who just accidentally, not even through, through subterfuge, but who aren't at all native, have no, I know per, a person who, who told me recently, he says, I'm not I'm not Indian, and which came to me as a quite – I said, well, of course you are. He says, no, no, no. His mother, who's not native, was pregnant with him when she married his father, who uh. was. When he was born, they enrolled him. It meant you know, a higher count of Indians in the household, which meant a little more flour, a little more lard in terms of commodities that they would receive as a treaty right. He was raised as a native person on his reservation doing all the things that, that a native person would do. He is – one of the most Indian people, if you want to think of it that way, that I know. And he has standing as a native person, mm -hmm. but by blood, he's not. So it gets complicated, right? Yeah, everything um, is complicated in this Everything's field. complicated, but being native is, is in part racial. It's in part ethnic. It's in part cultural. It's experiential. It's, it's um, geographical. It's, so it's many things. I mean, this is true for any culture, right? Mm -hmm. How you identify... Yourself is largely a matter of conscious choice. You can choose to identify yourself as this or that, as an American, as, as Irish, or as, as an African-American, or as an Asian-American, or just how you self-identify mm -hmm. as a man, as a woman, what have you. That's a matter of conscious choice. But your culture, your culture is something that you don't choose. You know, it's this contested, strange, nebulous, oftentimes unconscious habitual way of being. You don't choose your culture right. as much as you choose your identity. And that's, that's the difference. And people think you can choose a culture. It's like, well, you, you, you are what you are. You know? Well, why is it important to you that the Ojibwe language and, and other tribal languages should survive? It doesn't seem very well, practical. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Being an author is not very practical. <laughs> you know? That's very true. <laughs> Let's face it, right? You should have been a uh, lawyer like your mom and your sister. I know. <laughs> She's a practical lady, that one. <laughs> it's not practical in the sense that um, it's not going to help you buy toothpaste. But it's practical in a sense that if you want to re retain some sort of tribal and in some sort of autonomy – if you want to make a strong case for our continued sovereignty, I think you also have to take into account our, a cultural case. And language is one of the ways in which culture is both expressed and promoted and carried on. And without it, I think you, you, you become an ethnicity, not a, not a culture. And that, that poses problems, practical problems, but as well as, as, um, as other kind, harder to define, other problems which are, which are harder to isolate. But, um, what, what kind of practical problems are you, are you thinking of? I think there are assaults on our sovereignty all the time. And, for example, on the East Coast, a lot of tribes which, which tried to establish federal recognition and also tried to establish gaming were in the weird position of having to prove that not only were they descended from tribes, Eastern tribes, but that they actually had a tribal and cultural identity. They had to prove that they could be recognized by the, the federal government that had largely destroyed their way of life 
they had to prove to the same government that they were actually still <laughs> Indian, despite that same government's, you know, best efforts in order to get federal recognition, which is part of the process of being able to open a casino, among other things. Mm. What a weird position to be in. So that's a practical application of culture. Right. Language right. is a big part of culture. I think also it's it's the in our particular case, this is not true for every tribe, and it's not something I talk about in the book because um, it's not we're told it's not something you're supposed to write about, and I, I I live by that. But our language is 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 fundamental to our religion, and um, Ojibwe organized religion is understood as being practiced in Ojibwe and in no other language. Mm. We lose our language, we lose our religion. Right. It's that simple. Casinos, you say, have made the most difference to life on Indian reservations. After reporting and writing this book, do you have any predictions where the next big change will come from? I do, actually. And, and you know, maybe I'm biased. Of course I'm biased. <laughs> you are. But um, I think Indian monopolies on gaming are under threat in a lot of places. States are going to legalize gaming as a way to balance their books. A lot of states will try this. A lot of states will succeed. Some states will fail. And tribes will fight it. And some will win. Some won't. But that's been the big fight. And it will continue to be a fight and an important one. Economics is, is important. There's nothing limiting about being native. But there's a lot limiting about being poor. Right. And um, economics and economic development on reservations continues to be an important front that people should fight on. But what I've noticed... And what I think of as being the next big fight is precisely this thing I was just talking about. I think it'll be a return to tribal languages and religions. That is the big groundswell that I've been noticing in the past 20 years in Ojibwe country, but then in communities and tribes across North America. There's been, after, in some cases, centuries of neglect of cultural knowledge and tribal languages and a kind of derision aimed at, you know, these, these holdouts, these traditionals who were talked about as being not as bright, not as forward-thinking, not mm. modern, not, you know, stupid. Um, these were things leveled at traditional monolingual, sometimes bilingual speakers of their native languages and pra practitioners of their cultural lifeways. Yeah. This is turning around, and I think this is the big movement underfoot. I've been seeing it for a long time, and it's growing and growing, and it's really exciting to see it. It's a beautiful thing. Cool. David, thanks once again for chatting with me. That was David Troyer, author of Res Life, An Indian's Journey Through Reservation Life, and it's available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm Jean Thomas.